This video was made possible thanks to your support on Patreon. Subscribe on Patreon for early access to videos and additional content. American football, rock and roll, and the massive roller coaster park Cedar Point. These are just some of the things the US state of Ohio is best known for. It is also known for its many well-documented cold cases, including the butcher of Kingsbury Run and the case of Amy Mihalovic. But these are only some of the state's most compelling mysteries. In today's episode, we'll be exploring two cold cases from Ohio with more questions than answers. Charles Ulrich. Born on October 30th, 1912, Charles Albert Ulrich lived a relatively normal life and by all accounts was an ordinary man. Like many, as he grew older, he hoped to retire in a few short years and live out the rest of his days in peace with his beloved wife of 41 years. But his plans were dashed in 1975 when he suddenly disappeared one stormy morning. On January 29th, 1975, Charles's wife awoke at 7 a.m. to find she was alone. Her husband's pajamas had been strewn carelessly across the bed. This was her first clue that something was amiss. Charles always made sure to neatly fold his pajamas and then put them away. It was the first thing he did every morning after getting dressed. More clues revealed themselves as Mrs. Ulrich made her way through the house. There was no freshly made coffee and her husband's keys, wallet, money, and pocket knife remained on the kitchen counter, just where he left them every night before bed. The couple's car was still in the driveway. The biggest red flag, however, was that the front door was ajar. Mrs. Ulrich called all of her neighbors. The couple lived in Ulrichsville, specifically in the Riverside area on County Road 39, which is now known as Riverside Road. This is where Charles was last seen the night before as a thunderstorm raged on. Despite calling around everyone she could, nobody had seen Charles that morning. Mrs. Ulrich searched for him until 8.45 a.m., which is when she finally notified the police. Both authorities and locals came together to meticulously search the area for any sign of the missing 62-year-old. They used cars and boats and went both by foot and on horseback but still, there were no clues. Mrs. Ulrich informed the police that two nights before he vanished, she'd woken at 2 a.m. and thought she'd heard the front door close. Afraid, she woke Charles, who took his shotgun and went to investigate. However, there was no sign of an intruder, and it's unknown if this incident is related to the 62-year-old's subsequent disappearance. When police spoke with the neighbors, they uncovered a little more information but not enough to truly help propel the investigation forward. One neighbor said they had seen car lights on the Ulrich's driveway at 6.30 that morning. Another saw a man standing by the road as if waiting for a ride. Again, it's unclear if these sightings are linked to the vanishing. 
At the time of his disappearance, Charles was working as a claims examiner for the Bureau of Employment Services Office in New Philadelphia. He had been working very hard as he had a heavily increased workload, which was now three times the amount it had been in the year prior. The night before he vanished, Mrs. Ulrich said that her husband had gotten a phone call and when he hung up, he told her, you know, if it was a year later, I would retire. However, Charles didn't disclose who the caller was or what the conversation was about. Meanwhile, his office manager said that his behavior had been normal as of late and he didn't seem under particular stress. There are very few theories in Charles's case, given the lack of information available and a disappointing lack of public interest in the disappearance. Online sleuths have suggested the possibility that he was interrupted in the morning by a knock at the door. Thus, he never tidied away his pajamas or woke his wife. Others have theorized that, since he had taken his coat and hat, perhaps he went to get the newspaper at the end of the drive and was taken by surprise by an attacker. Another Reddit user suggested the idea that maybe his increased workload, accompanied by religious pressure, led him to take his own life. He may have done so in an area where he knew he wouldn't be found so as not to upset his wife. It's also been speculated that he was simply involved in an accident in the nearby river. However, there is no real evidence to support any of these theories. Charles was a World War II veteran who'd served in the United States Naval Construction Forces and who sometimes went by the name Spike. He was a deeply religious man who served as an elder at the local church and taught Sunday school. Loved ones described him as witty and eloquent. He didn't drink and had quit smoking a few years before vanishing. Charles was in good health, had a happy marriage, no debts, and was not known to be depressed, leaving many to suspect that his disappearance was not at his own hand. Charles was declared legally dead in 1980. His case remains unsolved. If you have any information about what may have happened, you can contact the local county sheriff office at 330 339-2000. Eliza Sherman. Eliza Sherman was a 53-year-old mother of four in 2013. The daughter of a Holocaust survivor, she'd spent her life working as a nurse and more recently was working specifically as an in vitro fertilization nurse at Cleveland Clinic. 2013 was a year of change for the 53-year-old. After a tumultuous 30 years together, Eliza had decided to divorce her husband, Sanford, and was looking forward to starting a new chapter in her life as a single woman. Sanford had met Eliza while they were both at medical school. He was training to be a doctor while she was training to be a nurse. Sanford was described as a generous man but someone who had a tough and mean side that he wasn't afraid to show. However, no examples have ever been given about exactly what this side of him entailed. The pair married in 1982 and went on to have four children together, Jason, Josh, Jeremy, and Jennifer. Jason recalled a time where the police had come to the family home following a violent argument between the couple. His older siblings had alerted the authorities to the matter it would not be the last time that law enforcement would visit the pair. In 2004, Sanford's office assistant of 18 years quit the job. 
So, instead of hiring and training a new assistant, the doctor simply closed his practice. That same year, Jeremy, who was just nine at the time, had to call the police during a Hanukkah dispute between his parents. A year later, in 2005, Eliza became angry about her husband's friendship with a man named Larry, and the pair engaged in a bitter argument that quickly escalated. Sanford later told authorities that his wife struck him, beat the TV, and smashed up his car. Meanwhile, Eliza said that her husband repeatedly threatened her, claimed that he would divorce her, and told her that he'd leave her without any money. It was 2011 when Eliza realized she'd finally had enough. Although Sanford attempted to reconcile with her by suggesting they attend couples counseling, the mother of four was exhausted and could see no way forward without the divorce. That same year, Sanford requested that a restraining order be put on their bank accounts that had Eliza's name attached. A year later, in 2012, Eliza wrote an email to herself stating, quote, I am really afraid he's going to have me killed. She followed this by putting a deadbolt on her door so that he couldn't enter her room. On March 24th, 2013, Eliza sent a text to her daughter Jennifer to let her know she was going to visit her divorce lawyer, a man named George Moore, as she had paperwork to finalize. The proceedings so far had not gone smoothly and were dragging out more than Eliza wanted. Additionally, Moore was not the most competent lawyer. He was frequently late to meetings and often filed continuances on the case, citing that he was unprepared to go to court. Moore was also not her first choice. Initially, Eliza had been working with his partner, but he had his license suspended following a violation of six of Ohio's rules for professional conduct, and so Moore took over the case. The mother of four had attempted to go elsewhere, but no other lawyer wanted to take her on because the proceedings had been so drawn out and she was short on funds. Before leaving the house, Eliza told her son Jeremy that she'd bring back pizza. She also planned on stopping by her mother's home in Cleveland Heights to drop off her medication. However, by about 7.45 that evening, Eliza still hadn't returned home and her children grew concerned. Any phone calls they made went unanswered, something which was uncharacteristic as she was always available to take calls from her children. Worried, Jennifer got into her car and began driving around to look for her. Then her phone rang. She rushed to answer it, thinking it would be her mother, but it wasn't. It was Jeremy. He told her that the police were on their way to the family home. Jennifer doubled back to the house. Just hours earlier, at 5.30 p.m., law enforcement had received a phone call from an office worker who heard Eliza screaming and had rushed to her aid. She had been stabbed 11 times in total, once to the right arm, twice to the right side of her neck, and eight times in the back. Just 45 minutes after the worker dialed 911, Eliza was pronounced dead. She was just two blocks from her lawyer's office. CCTV showed someone in a hooded green jacket fleeing from the scene. The footage is grainy, and some have speculated that the person had a limp, but others have argued that the person is running awkwardly because they are possibly clutching the murder weapon to their chest, trying to keep it hidden. Many online sleuths believe that the person on the footage is a woman, given their petite stature. 
The murder weapon has never been found, and authorities have ruled out the notion that the attack was opportunistic given the brutal nature of the crime, which made it seem personal. They have also ruled out the motive of robbery, as nothing was taken from Eliza. In the years following the 53-year-old's demise, her daughter Jennifer filed a civil lawsuit against her father. Reportedly, she had been estranged from Sanford for some time, given how poorly he treated her mother. In the suit, Jennifer sought to recover around $2 million, which her father had allegedly funneled from a joint bank account he had held with his deceased wife. Jennifer claimed that he, along with five other people, had tried to hide the money from her mother by moving it into a bank account in Eliza's name without her knowledge back in the year 2000. Reportedly, the mother of four's signature had been forged to create the account. Eliza had discovered the account just months before her death. However, by this time, the account had been closed and the money had been withdrawn. Sanford claimed that he'd moved the money because his malpractice insurer had gone into liquidation and he needed to protect his assets. Jennifer argued that the money might have been her mother's following the divorce, while her father responded that the funds were marital assets and belonged to both of them. Meanwhile, the couple's son, Josh, filed a motion to remove Jennifer as a co-executor of Eliza's will, claiming that she had a vendetta against their father and that she believed Sanford had murdered their mother. However, Josh dropped the claim in 2015. The suit was eventually settled in 2017. Sanford would pay $110,000 to Eliza's estate as long as Jennifer made no further claims against him. However, she reserved the right to make claims if Sanford is ever convicted of any criminal offense in the future related to her mother's death. To add further drama to this case, in 2016, Eliza's lawyer, George Moore, was indicted on multiple different charges, including, but not limited to, one count of tampering with evidence, one count of obstructing official business, and two counts of forgery. Reportedly, authorities also investigated him in connection with the 53-year-old's death. He supposedly messaged Eliza to meet him at his office, but keycard data and witness statements claimed that Moore left an hour before their meeting and returned an hour after the murder. Moore is known to have been uncooperative with the police's investigation and has insisted that he was in his office at the time of Eliza's demise, despite the evidence that says otherwise. He was later indicted for further unrelated charges, including making bomb threats to courthouses on days that his clients were scheduled to attend court. Most theories in Eliza's case involve either George Moore, her husband Sanford, or both. Many assume Sanford is responsible, given the information about funneling money away from Eliza and his history of violence in the relationship. Others have speculated that perhaps he and Moore conspired together. However, some online sleuths believe that Moore is a red herring. During the case, it was revealed that Sanford had been seeing a woman between 2006 and 2010 in New York and Florida. It has been suggested that this could be the woman who CCTV caught fleeing the scene. Furthermore, it came to light that Sanford had asked a friend how to get away with the perfect murder. However, there is no concrete evidence to link the doctor to the crime. Eliza's case is still unsolved. 
there is a $100,000 reward available in her case. If you have any information, you can contact the detectives heading the investigation at 216-623-5464. Or alternatively, you can call Crime Stoppers anonymously at 216-252-7463. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. You can also support us on Patreon for just $2 a month to help us make videos just like this one. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.